Thank you so much. Hey, I like this note. It says, pray for rain. So let's do that. How's that sound? All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, are so grateful that uh, you love us and you give good gifts to us. And so, Father, uh, especially in this region, especially at this time, we do pray for uh, the generosity of rain, Father. Um, Father, our, our lives, our, our economy around this place depends upon your graciousness. And so, Father, we do pray for rain. We pray for our farmers. We pray, Father, that you'll grant us uh, this request. And it's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Okay, talk about uh, worthless definitions. Don't you love definitions like this? Enlightenment, the act and means of enlightening, the state of being enlightened. I mean, just absolutely worthless. And, and, and um, you know, it's like chair. How would you define chair? It's a chair. I mean, this is the enlightenment, right? It's this worthless definition. But I got to let you know that we've always sort of had this sort of mystic appeal to what I would call enlightenment, right? Enlightenment, the idea of having some sort of a, a special insight or superior knowledge or some sort of inside track has always been really appealing to us. And actually, history bears that out. Uh, the first century had its run at enlightenment through Gnosticism or the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, you know, it meant one who knows. And what they thought, they thought really that the flesh and was evil. And what they thought is that if we could just get really special knowledge, if we get special knowledge, then we'll have this inside track to divinity. And, and then we had the Age of Enlightenment in the 18th century in Europe. And what they did is they, they lifted up science and reason and downplayed religion and tradition and we also have certain religions that talk about eventually how you could achieve enlightenment. Like, for instance, in Buddhism, uh, enlightenment means that you come to this perfect knowledge and wisdom along with this infinite, this infinite compassion. And, and how you do that is, is that you achieve this enlightenment when you live your life of suffering, of meditation, of working really hard spiritually and physically. It's found in good behavior, and, and eventually you achieve, achieve this enlightenment, which is nirvana. And then we've had history is filled with what I would call charlatans. Charlatans who have promised enlightenment. They have promised special knowledge, but in reality, what they've done is given us death and destruction. You had Jim Jones in uh, November of 1978 of the People's Temple. And in South America, he led some people down there to try and experience this, this perfect community. And what ended up happening was over 900 people committed suicide. There's Marshall Applewhite. And Marshall Applewhite was in San Diego, in, and this was in 1997. Uh, in fact, Betty and I and a uh, team were there planting churches in San Diego, and they were, just, they were just up the road from us. Now, I never met Marshall, but here's his theory. And here's, he, he uh, had 39 people commit suicide based upon this thought. He believed that there was a spacecraft, an alien spacecraft, 
at the tail end of the Haley Bopp uh, asteroid belt. And so what they thought was is that if they could just leave their earthly lives, their containers, when they left their containers, what would happen is, is that they would go to the spaceship, the alien spaceship in this comet. And I'm not making this up. And then we have also David Koresh. David Koresh of the Branch Davidians. And he, he thought he had this special insight. He had this enlightenment into the book of Revelation and to the seven seals. And unfortunately, 82 people lost their lives because of that. And, and, and so you're looking at this word enlightenment and you're going... Um, no thank you, Bill. If that's what enlightenment is, I think what I'm going to do today is I'm going to pass on enlightenment. But while the world has struggled with this concept of enlightenment, it is not true with Christians. While our definitions may be similar like for enlightenment, it's, it's making things clear, it's making things known, it's fully revealing something. While the definitions may be similar, the object is completely different. You see, the object of enlightenment for the Christian is Jesus Christ. The enlightenment for the Christian is found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Enlightenment is found... And experienced when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, there is enlightenment. Last week, David did an excellent job talking to us about this out of this world. And that's a series that we're in right now. We're in this out of this world series, a study of the book of Ephesians. And he talked about this out of this world relationship. And he talked about the love and the sacrifice and the grace that's been placed upon us because of, because of Jesus Christ. And I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 or wherever you get Bible, tablet, phone, wherever you get Bible. I want you to turn there because I want us to talk about what follows after that description. What follows after that description, it's, it's really funny. you got to sense what Paul's going on. Paul He's, he's just described in that one, verses 1 through 14 or 3 through 14, it's just one sentence. There's no break there. It is the super long sentence. And he gets to the end of the sentence, and as if he can't just contain himself, he just starts off into this prayer. He just starts saying this prayer. And I want us to read that prayer today. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 23, for this reason. And so he's grabbing hold of what he just said. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking God that God of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope in which you are called. 
the riches of his glorious grace, uh, inheritance in the saints, and the incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things underneath his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and fills everything in every way. And that's his prayer. But I want you to know the first thing, and remember this as we we begin and we launch out into this prayer that Paul prays after this glorious, out-of-this-world relationship is described. Here's what he wants the Christians to know, and he wants us to know is this, is that we are enlightened. Paul is not telling us we hope we get enlightenment. Paul is not saying to us, I hope someday that you will achieve enlightenment. But what he's saying here is this, is that we are enlightened. Because we remember everything that God has done for us, right? 1-4, he chose us. 1-5, he adopted us. 1-7, he redeemed us. 1-7, also, he forgave us. So Paul's prayer here is not for enlightenment, but to affirm the enlightenment that we already have in Christ Jesus. And this truly is an out-of-this-world enlightenment. So the question is this, if we're already enlightened, then why is Paul praying? If we already have that in Christ Jesus, if as a Christian we were baptized into Christ, when we are baptized into Christ we become enlightened, then what's his prayer supposed to do? And I think his prayer is supposed to do this. It's to give us a a spirit and a heart to understand the depth of this enlightenment. Have you noticed the terminology he uses here? He says, I pray that the Lord will grant you a spirit and revelation so that you'll begin to understand this enlightenment that you're enjoying. Here's what I believe is this. I don't think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I don't believe he's referring to the Holy Spirit as much as he's talking to us and praying for us as this. I pray that you will have the capacity to perceive the depth of this enlightenment. I am praying this so that you will have the state of mind to understand the enlightenment that we have in Jesus Christ. I'm praying this so that you'll have a clear vision of the enlightenment that we have in Jesus Christ. I don't think he's referring to the Holy Spirit here. And not only is Paul praying for our wisdom and revelation, he's actually also praying for the eyes of our heart. Isn't that an unusual phrase? The eyes of our heart? It's unusual, but it's important. So when Paul prays for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, What he's wanted us to have is he's wanting us to have spiritual eyesight. He wants us to have spiritual eyesight to the depths of the enlightenment that we already possess in Jesus Christ. A lot of times when we refer to heart for us, we refer to it just strictly on, it's like an emotion for us. 
But I want you to know when the New Testament writers wrote about heart, they were writing about something completely different than just emotion. Emotion was in there, but it was something completely different. When, when the New Testament writers were talking about heart, they were talking about the totality of who we are, our whole personality, our whole inward self. They were talking about our intellect and our will and our emotions. So when, so when Paul says, may the eyes of your heart be open to understand the depth of enlightenment, he's referring to this, everything that we are, everything that we are inside of us. Be open to the enlightenment that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, the heart is the fulcrum. The heart is the fulcrum of feeling and faith. Our heart is the mainspring of words and actions. And since our heart is so important to us, I think it's important for us to understand how we need to guard our hearts. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. It says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Let's read that one more time. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And I began to think about what would guarding our heart look like for us? What would guarding our heart look like for you? And, and what would guarding your heart look like for me? Guarding my heart look like for me? And begin to think about probably guarding my heart would bring about a greater care for what I lay on my heart. Right? Guarding my heart would mean being really careful about what I lay on my heart. A greater, a greater care for my heart would probably mean more time spent in prayer. A greater care for my heart would probably mean more time spent in His Word. A greater care for my heart would also mean that there is this confessional spirit that just flows from me, that, I, that I, don't let, I don't let sin set on my heart very long at all. I, I think maybe a, a greater care in guarding my heart would mean I'm very careful with my relationships with you. It, it means this, is that when something comes about, when there's friction between us, when there's conflict between us, we don't let that sit, we don't let that rest. We get up, we leave our worship at the altar, and we go take care of that. And I think that's what it means to guard our heart. I want you to listen to this phrase, because it's sort of the, the linchpin of our study here about the heart. Listen to this. The capacity of perceiving of perceiving this enlightenment or our state of mind or the way we deal with our heart determines the depth in which we comprehend the enlightenment we have in Christ. What we do with our heart, what it does is it, it allows us, if we take care of it, it allows us to understand 
the depth of this out-of-this-world enlightenment. We truly do have this out-of-this-world enlightenment. And because of that, what everything that Christ has done, I want to have a clearer perception of that. I want, to, I want to be able to see that and experience that and know the depth of that. So Paul will go into this. But Paul, what do you want me to see more clearly? I understand you want me to have the spirit of this. I, want you to, I know you want me to have not only the spirit, but I, what is it that you want me to see more clearly in this enlightenment? And Paul will say this, I want you to have an enlightened hope. An enlightened hope. Notice what he says in 118. All right, 118, it says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you were called. This hope. Hope is defined as this desire for the future with the expectation of obtaining it. Understand this. Hope is not some subjective feeling. Hope is not this this personal aspiration where I hope to be. Hope is not going around going, man, I just crossed my fingers. I just hope, I sure hope this happens. Hope is not any of those things. You see what, here's what hope is. Hope is an expectation. It's an expectation of both a desire and that it will happen. Hope Defined here means a couple things. I think there is this idea of the hope of eternity. And we we have that, right? We know that this world is not our home. Remember the song? We're just a what? Just a passing through. We're just passing through. But hope is also defined in this. That eventually, God will make everything right he'll make everything right hope i love this this phrase hope is faith in the future tense it's the confidence this this little boy had who was playing a little league game and this spectator came up to him and and said uh, he's in the dugout and the little and the man says uh, so uh, what's the score And the little boy goes, 18 to nothing, and we're behind. And the man goes, well, you must be really, really discouraged. And he goes, no, I'm not discouraged at all. We just haven't come to bat yet. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Hope is this expectation. It's this expectation and belief. But can we be honest? This world doesn't offer a whole lot of hope. In fact, this world does a really, really, really good job of beating hope out of us. And and so the question is, Paul, why, why in the world can I have hope in this world? Paul, why can I have hope in this world? And Paul says, I want to let you know, here's the reasons why we could have hope. The first one is this, God's infallible promises. God's on the throne 
And I promise you, everything that he says, every promise that he utters, every promise that he made will come true. We could have hope not only because God is, infall- is, is of his infallible promises, but we could have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty today, and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. We could have hope today because, here's the thing, we have the possession of and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's what gives us hope. I like this quote by Gabriel Marcel where it says this, Hope is for the soul what breathing is for the living organism. And today I pray that the breath of hope be deep and strong and steady in us. Not only were we to have an enlightened hope, but we're to having an enlightened inheritance. Again, notice this idea found in verse 18. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. An enlightened inheritance. Now, again, I want to, I want to bring this up. David, last week, as you get to the end of chapter, that first section in chapter 1, he talks about inheritance. And this inheritance that we have... It's something that God gives us, and he gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment on the inheritance that we will receive someday. But I want to let you know that Paul does something different here with this inheritance. The first one, he says, he calls it glorious. And every time you read glorious in the New Testament, every time you read glorious in the New Testament, it is always positive, always positive. It's always positive. Listen to this. Glorious is this. It means magnificent, excellent. It possesses dignity and grace. What Paul does, though, he's not talking about our inheritance as much as he's talking about God's inheritance. And what Paul does is he flips this. He flips it and he says this. It's if God's looking down as he is and he goes... Do you want to know who my, my inheritance? You want to know? Hey, I want to tell you what my inheritance looks like. And he goes, it's them. It's us. We are God's inheritance. God looks down at us and goes, oh, man, you guys are a great inheritance. It's this beautiful imagery of God, us not looking to him for an inheritance, but him looking to us and going something like this. You are the most beautiful inheritance in the whole wide world. God doesn't look down at us with disgust or disdain or hatred or regret. God looks down at us and he says, you are my glorious inheritance. Amen. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Not only is he his inheritance, we have an enlightened power. Notice again, and we go back to the text, his incomparably great power. And, and I, I like this incomparably great power. That word incomparably, if, if, you look that, if you're to look that up, it means this. It means throwing beyond the usual. Throwing beyond the usual mark. It looks something like this. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Have you ever been talking to kids and you go, 
and God created the earth and everything in it and in God powerful. And the little kid goes, what? Yes, God is so powerful. Paul's saying this, whatever power that we could imagine, God goes beyond that. And, and he talks about this power in this, this really beautiful way. He says, you know, he describes it. And, and I want you to get a feel for what's going on. Now, look at your Bibles. Now, go down to, um, let's look at verse uh, 19 there. All right, so he's talking about the power. Now, look, let's pick it up there. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted when, when, he, when, uh, when he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Now watch this. Okay, this is so cool. All right, as, as if he just stops there, okay? And Paul does this several, all the time in his writings. It's almost like he starts thinking about the power of God and he goes, I've just got to tell you more about the power of God. And for another three verses, here's what he does. For another three verses, he just goes, and the power of God does this, and the power of God does this, and the power of God does, does this. And he just ends it. In every way, God's powerful. He just can't, he can't even, he goes beyond himself to describe the power of God. And, and let's take a look at this. How is this enlightened power expressed? It's expressed in the powerful resurrection. Christ took the seat of position of honor and authority in the heavenly places. Christ is supremely exalted above every name that might be related to authority and power in this present age and age to come. It means this. There will be no power greater than Jesus Christ forever. Ever. Hey, I really don't like it when we say we're a worldwide power. <laughs> you know what happens when we start saying stuff like that? God breathes and we all fall down. Right? That's Isaiah. There will never be a power greater than that of Jesus Christ. Christ is over the principalities and powers and might and dominions which refer to the rank and degree of power among angels and spiritual beings, both good and bad. There will never be an angel greater than Jesus. There will never be a demon greater than Jesus. There will never be a spiritual being, good spiritual being, greater than Jesus. There will never be an evil spiritual being greater than Jesus. And Christ's power extends over the church He's head of the church, he's supreme, he's prominent, he's chief, he's master, and he's Lord of the church, and we're not. But here's the twist. Here's the twist. The same power that is expressed in Jesus Christ is found in every believer. It's found in us who believe in Jesus Christ. But here's my confession again. I got to let you know there's a lot of times when I don't feel all that powerful. <laughs> okay? I, I just don't. And I'm wondering... 
if that's the point. Right? I'm wondering if that's the point. That, that we get to a point, excuse that, that we get to a point where we stop relying upon our power and we rely upon the power of Jesus Christ. And that we completely give ourselves over to the power of Jesus Christ and not try to do things on my or our power. And I think that's the point. I hope, I hope this sermon, I hope this passage, I hope this prayer has helped you. It helped me to understand the depths of enlightenment. And, and like every Sunday, here's what we do. Every Sunday, here's what we do. We offer, we offer a, a we offer a call. We offer a call, an invitation call. We, we offer a call to anybody who has not been immersed into Christ by faith. So that you receive forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we make that call today for you. We also make this call of this. Is that if you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you need help, if you need prayers. If we could help you in any way, we want to do that also. But I thought today... Because this is a prayer that we end this sermon, not service, this sermon in a prayer. So I'm going to ask you to stand, please. And let me lead us in a prayer for a greater understanding of this out of this world enlightenment. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will give us a spirit that helps us to understand you better. Father, we pray that you will open up our heart so that we could truly understand the hope of our calling and the richness of our inheritance found in you. Father, we pray that we will... We will rely not on our own power, but the power of Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for the mighty power found in Jesus Christ. We are so grateful that Jesus Christ is risen, that the tomb is empty, and he sits on the throne. Father, it gives us such comfort to know that Christ's power is far beyond any power we have on this earth and beyond any power in the heavenly realms. Finally, Father... We are grateful that Christ is head of the church. Father, today we humbly submit our lives to you and ask that you give us a deeper insight to the enlightened relationship we have with you. In Jesus' name, amen.